Welcome to the Finding Gravitas podcast, brought to you by Gravitas Detroit. Looking to become a more authentic leader? Finding Gravitas is the podcast for you. Gravitas is the ultimate leadership quality that draws people in. It's an irresistible force encompassing all the traits of authentic leadership. Join your podcast host, Jan Griffiths, that passionate, rebellious farmer's daughter from Wales, entrepreneur, leadership coach, keynote speaker, one of the top 100 leading women in the automotive industry, as she interviews some of the finest leadership minds in the quest for gravitas. In this episode, We'll explore the leadership journey of the Tennessee boy who thought he'd made it when he became a design and release engineer for General Motors. Oh, but he was wrong. He was dead wrong. That was just the beginning. Meet the man who progressed from GM to Maytag to become the senior VP and president for Thermo Fisher Scientific's life sciences solutions and laboratory products business, a business with revenues in excess of $10 billion. And in April 2019, he was appointed as a member of the DuPont Board of Directors. And if that wasn't enough, he was recently named one of the top 22 most influential people in the fight against COVID-19. We'll explore the authentic leadership traits that make Fred Lowry the man and the leader that he is today. Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Excited to be here. It has been a long time since you and I had a conversation. Now, hasn't it? It's been too long, but, you know, let's don't call it that long. It wasn't that long ago, right? <laughs> well, we should explain to the audience our history. We should. Fred and I worked together at Maytag many years ago. And one of the things that I remember fondly is the day, and I guess the audience would also need to understand that you came out of automotive, so did I. It was our first experience out of automotive, and we're walking out of Maytag headquarters one day, and I remember us saying, oh, it's five o'clock, and we're walking out of the office. <laughs> I wonder what everybody in Detroit's doing right now. <laughs> yeah, let, let's just say that it wasn't automotive. That's for sure. Um, two things. One, I worked for you, Jan. I, let's be clear about it. You, you were my boss at the time. Though it didn't feel like it. We felt like it was. You were, we were great partners. We were having a great time. And I would tell you the saddest day at Maytag was the day you left. It really oh. it, We hated to see you go. Hated to see you go. Wow. But, uh, well, thank you. All great things come to an end. Well, but I am beyond thrilled to see your success and how you have grown. And I know firsthand that you're an authentic leader because I, I work sitting next to you side by side every single day. So I know it to be true. So Fred Lowry, what is your story? Let me, let me start with, um, I'll start at the beginning. I was born in Knoxville, Tennessee. So I am a I'm a Southern gentleman, <laughs> by birth at least. I went to college at Tennessee Tech University, played football there, and uh, got a degree in mechanical engineering. After college, I took a, 
I worked for a very short period of time at a place called Cookville Heating and Cooling. It was a mechanical contractor. I spent maybe a few months there, uh, which was a great start for me, frankly. But then um, General Motors came calling, and uh, I took a job in Ohio working at Packard Electric Division of General Motors, which um, um, ended up becoming part of Delphi. Worked there for a while, and then I moved up to GM Truck and Bus in Michigan. Worked there as a design release engineer. I started at, at GM down at Packard in operations, working operations, then worked in quality engineering, moved over to product engineering, and then I got the opportunity to go and be a design release engineer at, at GM Truck, which was an amazing job, probably one of my most favorite roles historically, uh, at least part of my career. And then I left and went to, went to Maytag and uh, started there in, in procurement, working for you. Started out in supplier quality and that moved on to supplier relationship management and we got involved there in Lean Six Sigma and all those types of things. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll tell a story about that at some point, about us tearing down the walls in the office, but uh, I'll come back to that later. I think it, that's a good authentic leadership conversation. Yes, it is. <laughs> to have. Uh, while I was at Maytag, though, I moved on from, from, from procurement and worked in business development, which is probably where I found something that I didn't realize that I was passionate about, but really passionate about growing businesses. As I think about, you know, how I would describe myself, I, I'm really a business development person that, that actually can run a business. And that's the way I, I show up every day is thinking about how we can support our customers better and uh, one, and two, how we're going to make money doing it and how to make sure everybody's aligned around those two things and having a great time. So that's, that's kind of the way I, the way I approach things. While in the business development world, I got, got to know a guy named um, Ken Boyle. We worked together very closely. Uh, I ended up moving on to more product management roles back on what we called the mothership at Maytag, so back in the brands, after doing some exciting things in business development. And Ken ultimately moved on to Fisher Scientific. And uh, he called me up and said, hey, why don't you come to Fisher Scientific? We're going to do some of the same things around business development here that we did at Maytag. We'd love to have you a part of the team. And I went to Fisher Scientific. It was a big change from an industry standpoint, you know, going from automotive to appliances. It was very somewhat similar, right? There, there were different points in the in maturity curve. But going to a scientific or life science tools company was, was very different and a lot to learn there. Ken left after six months. So after six months of uh, the person that brought me or left the company, and then six months later, Fisher Scientific was acquired by Thermo Electron. So I was uh, in a new industry, really working as a staff person at that point, doing some integration work, doing some operations work based on my background. We got acquired. And I, wel- I walked in and told my manager at the time, one of my better managers in my career, a gentleman named, by the name of Ray Patel. I said, Ray, I'm new to the industry. I don't have any direct reports. <laughs> I'm a synergy. <laughs> I'm working directly for you. I'm a synergy. So this is a problem. <laughs> I got to figure this out. And Ray said, hey, give me, give me 30 days and we'll f- see how this thing shakes out. And probably three weeks later, he uh, put me in a general management role. He was the vice president of general management of our, of our glass business. And from there, um, you know, here we sit, you know, 15 years later, and I've scaled an organization through various GM roles, various vice president, general management roles, business units and divisions. And, and now uh, I run one of our five business groups. My title is senior vice president, 
and president of Life Sciences Solutions and Lab Products. So I'm responsible for about a third of the company, about 26,000 colleagues, you know, 10 billion or so in, in revenue. So that's where I've landed at this point in my career. That's, that's quite a story from the GM engineer. It was the Maytag days that really did it, Jan. That's what did it. It was, I, I will tell you, you know, and I encourage everybody to do this. There is something about stepping outside of the industry silo that you're in. I, I agree. I, I think, um, well, first off, you don't know what you're good at until you go somewhere where they're not good at it. And then you realize, wow, I can add so much value based on the, the things that I've learned. But when you, when you stay in the same company, everybody knows the same things, right? So it's hard to distinguish yourself. When you step outside of that, that's one thing. And the secondly is coming to this industry, to life science tools has been really great for me. Total different industry dynamic. We're clearly the industry leader, but the industry is still consolidating. It's just a, a very different dynamic. And we are changing so fast that we're a scale company, you know, $170 billion, billion market cap company, $25 billion in revenue last year. So we have a, a real scale in the industry, but we don't have all the business processes yet because we're changing so, so rapidly. We're acquiring companies rapidly. So, there's, so we're like a new company every year or even, even maybe sometimes more frequently. So you, could, you continue to have to have this entrepreneurial spirit, but at the same time, you're kind of building the infrastructure to support the long-term growth of the company. And that has been uh, incredibly exciting. How do you do that? Uh, I think Jeff Bezos said that he treats every day as day one. So, you know, once that complacency sets in, it's like, it's like, it's over, right? It's killer. But how do you, how do you stay? How do you keep that edge? How do you keep the team motivated? Like it's sort of day one every day. I use this analogy. I feel like being the industry leader in an ever-changing industry is like running the 400-yard dash from lane eight. I don't know if you saw this a couple of years in the Olympics, the, the actual person that won the gold medal was, was running from lane eight. Nobody wins in, in lane eight. And part of the problem is you don't know how fast you're running <laughs> or, or you don't know how fast the people behind you are running until it's too, until it's too late. You come off that fourth curve and, and you're behind. Complacency is the enemy. It absolutely is the enemy. You've hit the nail on the head. And the way that you fight against complacency is with very aggressive targets. In our space, it's not just complacency around being um, displaced by a competitor. It's we spend more, more money on R&D than you know, over a billion dollars than anyone else in the industry. There are things that will not happen unless we do it. There's a societal impact that we have. And there's a huge responsibility that I feel every day that we absolutely have to do our very best for the end user, for the customer, for the patient. Because if we don't, it, it just might not happen. You've got to set really high targets. I never use the word stretch. There is no such thing as a stretch target in my book. We set high targets and we achieve them. And that's it. There's no excuses associated with it. We only achieve our targets. When you're dealing with products that are in this um, health 
um, life science environment. You know, you are dealing with things that impact people's lives, which I think really help when you're putting together a compelling vision or mission and getting a team behind it. How did that play out during this pandemic? Were you engaged in the COVID-19 situation much? I've got to believe you have to be, right? Yeah, we are. I mean, I would say, and I've said this internally, it's almost as if this company was put together for a time like now. It really has brought our mission to life. Our mission is to enable our customers to make the world healthier, cleaner, and safer. And it's very specific. It's around enabling our customers. And it's not about us. It's really about enabling them. Specifically around COVID, we were involved way back at the end of November when the virus emerged in in China. Our next-gen sequencing products were used to sequence the genome of the virus, which allowed us to work with our partners and then also allowed us internally to develop a test, a diagnostic test for for COVID. We had the first uh, emergency use authorization from the FDA for the COVID test, the PCR COVID test, which is proven to be the gold standard in testing. And we started ramping that test in in the March timeframe from about 500,000 tests per week. And now we're, we're up over 12 million tests a, a week that we're producing. And we're clearly the, the share leader in, in uh, COVID tests globally. So we're involved on that side, but then we're also involved with the, with the pharmaceutical and biotech companies working on vaccines and antivirals. So those are our customers and we're supplying them with research tools. Uh, we're also supplying them with uh, the tools and equipment used for production. And then a lot of the production raw materials. And then we also uh, own a CDMO, a contract development and contract manufacturing organization, and we're holding capacity to do the final form fill for whatever vaccine actually wins out to be the one that actually comes to market. We'll put the vaccine in the final, its final form, whether it's in a, a sterile vial or in a capsule, et cetera. We have been totally at the forefront and working like crazy to support our customers. But to your original question on on the societal impact, it's been incredible. And I cannot tell you how proud I am of our 80,000 colleagues and the work that they've done to support the COVID relief. Can I tell you one story? You would would just, this is my favorite story, but there are, I hate to tell it because there's so many other stories of just Herculean efforts that people are, uh, are going through. The instrument that we make, the PCR instrument, a QPCR instrument we make uh, to um, perform the actual test in the lab is produced in Singapore. Well, many of our colleagues in that factory actually live in Malaysia and they come across the border, as you know, and go to work in Singapore. Well, during the pandemic, the border closed. And so colleagues could not cross the border and they actually had to make a decision that if they went back to Malaysia, they wouldn't be able to come to work. But if they stayed in Singapore, they had no idea when they could go back to Malaysia. Jan, we had over 150 of our colleagues, like 90 plus percent of them made the decision to stay in Singapore because they understood how important, they knew that this product was being used to diagnose uh, patients with COVID. And they just understood how important it was. And they said, we're gonna stay here as long as, as necessary. And of course, with support from the company and you know, we did all, all that we could do to support them. 
They stayed there until the border shut down. Months, months, not weeks, over three months away from their family during a, a global pandemic, supporting the societal need through manufacturing instruments. What an, what an amazing story. I mean, it, it just uh, gives me chills thinking about it today. I, I cannot tell you how proud I am to work for a company where, where we're, we're having such an impact and where our colleagues are so committed uh, to our customers. Well, I think that that's also a testament to your leadership. I know that you're, you're going to go, oh, I mean, obviously they're, they're great human beings, right? With a tremendous value system and commitment to, to, to the good of others, of all others. But Fred, it takes great leadership for people to, to feel that way and to want to do that. What in your mind Let's let's talk about, you know, that is the ultimate of a high-performance team, right? A team that will do anything for each other and for the cause. What, in your mind, is the most important trait of a high-performance team outside of a pandemic environment, in, in a normal environment? You know, I think uh, just starting with, you know, thinking about teams, there's a couple of things I think about. One is getting the best talent. I really believe that when you're going to put the team together, you don't. And I'm very conscious about this when sometimes you get it. Hey, I got to get, get a team for this. And sometimes leaders are like, well, let me find the person that's not doing anything. I'm like, no, 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 no. I want you. Know, I want the best people. <laughs> Give me the best person that can work on this. So, so I really think it starts with getting the very best talent, giving them really, really clear direction. But then you got to get out of their way. You know, hey, I'm here to support you, but... I'm going to get out of your way. And what that really means is you're responsible for the result. You've you got to empower them. Say, hey, you, we've, we've got this team of great people. This is what we're trying to do. These are objectives, a little direction. Go have at it. Let me know if, if I can help or how I can help. And I think that is the, that's the real trick is to make sure people realize. And I always see this light bulb going, going in people's heads, especially early in their careers. We say, hey, you're the team. You, you, you can do whatever you want. And they're like, you mean I can, I can do whatever I want? <laughs> yeah, you're accountable for it. Whatever, whatever you want. You guys can figure, you, you guys figure it out. Let us know. And I, I think that's the, the, the thing that I love about a good team is, is once they realize that they can, it's, it's, it's on them, right? They can figure it out. You see the cream rise to the top. You see people that's, you know, they, all of these things that have been inhibiting them go away and they come up with just the most miraculous things. So that really excites me. And, you know, I really think of building people and teams as being the highest order of, of a leader is to watch people grow and, and make sure that teams are growing. I mean, of course, you have to hold people accountable, but you really need to give them a lot of empowerment. Otherwise, you won't get the best, you won't get the best outcome. You know, one of the things I loved about Maytag is that at the time, uh, Terry Carlson was the uh, CPO of, of Maytag and we worked for Terry and he really empowered right. us. He basically said, you know, here, here it is. This is what we got to do. Have at it. He knew that we needed a bit more of the automotive infrastructure right. in there, but not too much that we tried to make Maytag an automotive company because that wouldn't work. And he knew that we could figure out how to make that work. And he let us go at it. As I look at leaders that uh, are scaling in the organization, 
usually you can point to a place in their past where early on they had the opportunity to put their fingerprints on something. I actually think that's a big part of developing leaders is giving them the order. You go figure this out or maybe a part of team. You guys go figure it out. And we don't know what, we don't know what the right answer is. And you're going to come back and tell us. Now, we're obviously going to challenge you and ask questions and why is this right? And you're going to have the facts and data behind it and all those types of things. But I think that having that accountability early in your career really gives you a chance to develop as a leader. And then it, you, you just hit repeat, right? You do the same for, you do the same for the folks that, that are on your team. You give them the order and give them the empowerment, if you will, give them the responsibility uh, to make a difference. And, uh, and you got to trust them, got to trust them to do it. You know, you're right. And at Maytag, we literally did tear oh. down the walls, didn't we? <laughs> You know, that set the tone for our group at Maytag. And a little background, Maytag was, was very conservative. I mean, you know, your office literally could be a certain size based on your level. Uh, if you were a director, you could get one picture on the wall. If you're a vice president, you could get two. Of course, those, those pictures came from the uh, company stash of, of, uh, <laughs> of artwork. Uh, it was very conservative. Quite conservative, right? Do you, I mean, am I, am I making it? I was, I'm probably not doing it justice. And literally, our office, there were two of us in the office, was next to our manager's office, who was, was Jan, and we literally tore the wall down in between. <laughs> and, and I remember them saying, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> yes. I thought it was great. And uh, it just really set the tone for, hey, it's not business as usual here. And we are going to work together as a team. And we are going to do something really special that hasn't been done here before. So uh, we were, we were uh, you know, young enough and brazen enough. And I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know if we were smart or stupid at the time, but it all seemed to work out. <laughs> Well, we knew it was right. We knew it was the right thing to do, and we felt safe doing it. And and that's what leaders have to do today is create that environment. I mean, I felt that as long as we were doing something that we believed in, that we did it for the right reasons, we were true and authentic about it, that Terry would support us. And that's it's how I felt. I mean, I felt like I could take I, on the I world. I tell you what, uh, you've, you've really hit the nail on the head. And I, I like to think about this issue of air cover or really driving accountability low in the organization and saying, Hey, we believe in you and we're going to empower you. A lot of that has to do with the environment you create around honesty and trust. And in order to get to trust, I think you have to start with honest vertical communication, both good and bad, both up and down. And I'm re I really, force that issue, you know, personally, but from, but from my, my leaders to say, we have to be very clear and as transparent as we possibly can be with our teams, because that's what we need them to be. We need them to be very clear and very transparent vertically. Otherwise, we can't make good decisions. If, 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 if bad news doesn't travel up quickly, we're going to lose. If we only get good news... <laughs> and people are trying to hide the bad stuff, you know, we're going to lose. And, but, but at the same time, if bad news comes up and we, you know, we beat people to death because of it, then we're still, we're still going to lose. So you have to create that safe environment where 
listen, I'm going to be as transparent as possible with you and tell you exactly what I'm thinking uh, in love, not in, not in, not in a, you know, not in a, Hey, I'm, 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 I'm beating you over the head with a stick, but I'm going to tell you exactly where, what I see and what I think. And I expect the same in return. And we're going to take that information and make the very best decisions for our customers, the very best decision for, uh, for our business. We're going to allocate resources in the very best way to drive success and support our colleagues. And, and that is, that is the trick is to create that environment where people are willing are willing to be honest all the time. Yeah, it's a it's a magic. And then you see people who are sometimes quiet in yeah. meetings. You know, if you see other people, not necessarily the leader, but when you see other people encourage the input from others. Uh, I saw um I didn't actually see it. I was giving a presentation to Flagstar Bank and one of their uh the women in the audience was talking about one of the VPs and she said that he, you know, often in a, in a conference room, in a boardroom type situation is the people that sit at the table and then yeah. there's a ring the, of the chairs on the outside. The kids seats in the back, right? <laughs> the kids seats in the back, right? And the people who don't feel, right. either feel like they don't belong or don't want to participate sit back there. And you see a lot of women uh. who sit back there. So not this one, <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> they uh, and this woman said in and she she we were talking about that in this in this situation and she said I just want to let you know that Greg the other day in a meeting stood up from the table sat in the back and gave his seat to her and she was at least 3 or 4 levels below him right and I thought wow you know they say actions speak louder than words that is Absolutely. action for inclusiveness, for diversity. It, it was all right there in one simple act. Yeah. You know, the other thing I see in some organizations uh, is this tendency to have pre-meetings. So you have like a pre-meeting before the meeting, <laughs> before the meeting to get to work out all the kinks. And so that the meeting itself is very well orchestrated, that there's nothing, there are no surprises in the meeting that, you know, everybody knows what everybody else is going to say in the meeting. And, you know, I say that's huge waste. You know, I'm a lean guy. You know, why are we having a pre-meeting for a meeting? Let's just have one meeting. And if you create an environment where people are honest and where you're comfortable with the truth coming out and you, you know that everybody's going to speak their version of the truth with, or, or their, give you their lens or their view on, on the situation, you don't need to have a pre-meeting. As a matter of fact, you don't want to have a pre-meeting because you're going to miss something. Uh, in the real meeting, because in the pre-meeting, things get weeded out. Well, we don't want to talk about that. We don't, we don't want to air our dirty laundry or whatever. So I, I, think, it's, I think it's just uh, one of those things that we all have to fight against and really be comfortable uh, living in a world where, and I, I say this all the time, where, hey, I may not have all the right answers. As a matter of fact, I'm sure I don't have all the right answers. I want to surround myself with the smartest people who collectively we're going to build to whatever that, whatever that true North is or whatever that right answer is in that situation. I think getting engagement from everyone, as you point out, especially taking advantage of the fact that you have a diverse team. And then secondly, making sure that you have an environment where everybody feels like they can bring their best self and be honest, you know, just a point on diversity if I, if I can, and I guess I will because 
uh, I've got the mic right now. So <laughs> as you know, I've never met a mic I didn't like. But uh, if your team's not diverse, you don't have the best team. That's not – that's a fact. That's not from – that's not a Fred Lowry opinion. It's a fact. You can read the study by McKinsey called Diversity Matters if you want to prove it to yourself. But if you're a leader and everybody's from the same school, if everybody looks like you, if you're a white man and everybody on your team's a white man, if you're Indian and everybody on your team is, is from India, whatever, whatever that dimension is, if you don't have diversity on your team, you're not getting the best result. I don't care how good the result is. It's not the best result. So if you want to have a great team, you better make sure you've got different opinions, you've got people with different experiences, and that every single one of those people on that team feel comfortable speaking up and being their very best self. Yes. And diversity is a, a great topic. And we often talk about diversity in terms of either gender or race. Those are the two areas that we right. tend to focus on the most. But one area of diversity that we don't talk about a lot, and that is ageism. Mm. And I love to see a team of people that's got some, some nice, young, raw right. talent, plus some seasoned people and people in the middle. And I've started uh, mentoring a young woman in my last job, and it, it evolved to very much a, a reverse mentoring type of situation. She was mentoring me as much as I was mentoring her. And I would love to see the day where we get away from this idea that the more senior person, you know, is the mentor because they have all this knowledge and wisdom to impart. Whereas the younger people just have a, a totally different, fresh ideas. They're coming with more technology to really embrace that. I'd love to see leadership embrace that part of diversity more than we're seeing right now. One of the things that we, uh, our millennials employee resource group has started several years ago, maybe three, four years ago now, is a reverse mentoring program. The millennials are the mentors and those of us who are becoming more senior in, in the organization and in age are the mentees. We go for a specific period of time, I think it's nine months, and we map out, just like a real mentorship program, we, we, we map out some areas we want to focus on and and we, and we do that. And I've, I've had a couple of different uh, uh, mentors through the reverse mentoring program. And we focused on things like social media, but we've also focused on things around how do we interact with our customers differently? You know, how do, because our customers have a lot of millennials, right? So uh, it's been really great from a business standpoint, but also great for me from a personal standpoint as well. And millennials are getting old now. It's about Gen Z. Yeah, yeah, they are. Gen Z's That's coming right. through, baby, you're right. big you're time. Right. You're right. And, and they are different again yeah. from millennials. Absolutely. And I think you, you mentioned technology. I think the fact that Gen Z millennials grew up with a different, a different set of technologies than we did, I think is really important as to how do we, how do we interact with our customers in, in the right way? How do we interact internally in the right way to drive the most effective outcomes? I think the pandemic has been a, a great example of, where technologies have kind of taken center stage that really existed in full stop in, in, in very capable ways. We just weren't using them to the extent that we are now. I'm super excited about the productivity that it's driving, but also the effectiveness that we're seeing with customers. I, I'll tell you, 
and we're, I'm sorry, we're so far off topic with leadership, but this is a leadership discussion. No, no, no. No, this is this is important. We, we'd love to hear about what you've learned during the pandemic. One of my observations has been, I spend a lot of time with customers. I kind of split my time between time at the front line. That would be our, our, sales, our sales teams and uh, colleagues that work uh, in operations and touch our products. But then I'll, the rest of my time is with customers. And then I try to keep the administrative time to as, as, as low as possible, as you might imagine knowing me well. Being able to have a video call with a customer when I'm sitting in my living room and she's sitting in her living room or her office. There's no corporate walls there where I've been on a plane and I showed up at her office and there's other people in the room and we're sitting in a conference room and we're very formal. It's been amazing how we have connected differently and more productively in the video space, not to mention the fact that logistically I can just see more customers. I can just talk to more customers. We could get on the phone for, for or the video for 15 minutes and work through an issue that would have taken us weeks because we first would have been trying to schedule the, <laughs> schedule the meeting so that we both could actually be face-to-face. So I've, I've found this to be incredibly valuable toward making deeper connections with customers and in the volume of visits. And this makes the same comments are the same for internal. I'm doing more skip level meetings. I got together a group of, uh, from a, our single use business, our bioprocessing business that's really involved with developing products for COVID. They've done an amazing job in, in just increasing production and getting things out the door. I got together with a few of the ops leaders. Could have sent them a note in a normal world, sent them a note and say, hey, congrats, thanks for just an email. I said, you know, let's get, him, let's get him on a video call. Talk to him for 15 minutes. Thank you. Guys, thanks so much. You know, you guys are making a huge difference. What a great team you are. Hey, what's on your mind? What else? What should I know? What should I, anything, anything you need? Anything I can do to be helpful? I mean, how much more productive is that than passing a few emails back and forth? Think about the personal touch. Even though a handwritten note is, is amazing, really having some face-to-face interaction and seeing the look in their eyes I used to call them the shiny eyes. Whether people are smiling or not, do they have that really shiny eye? Like, man, I, this is the best place to work. Driving that as a leader is, is incredibly important. I, I think we can, use, we can use technology to do it in a way that maybe was available that we just didn't take advantage of in the past. So I'm very excited about that. What has it done for speed of decision-making within the business since the pandemic? I've had several clients share with me that they, they've, they've made decisions. You know, it's, taken, it's gone through five steps rather than 15. Oddly enough, um, we started the year, we started our year with an annual leadership meeting with the top, top 300 plus executives. And one of the themes of that meeting this year was speed at scale. But really us thinking about the fact that we're getting larger as a company. We believe that scale matters, but we don't want scale to become bureaucracy and we don't want to become slow in front of our customers and all these, all these types of things. We were talking about driving speed at scale over a period of time. Little did we know there was going to be a global pandemic that just totally changed the clock speed of, of the company where we went from, and again, and again, these are products that have a huge societal impact. We went from having conversations around, let's set a meeting up and look at your calendar to look at your watch. 
when can we, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're on watch time now, you know, so when, when can we talk about this in the next hour? It, it's just been incredible. And the other thing is not just being the speed at which we've been able to make decisions, which has been impressive. There's been a speed at which we've been able to bring things to market and scale and that thing. That's been really impressive. You know what else? It's deciding who actually needs to be involved in making a decision. We had an example where someone was relocating and there, was a, there, there needed to be an exception to the relocation policy. This decision had to go through multiple layers of, of management to get approved. And we're talking about a, thousands of dollars of a decision, not, a, you know, not millions of dollars. We went from that taking weeks to making decisions, million dollar decisions, multi-million dollar decisions around investing and in, to scale up in different areas in hours, like literally <laughs> going from weeks on something that, you know, in, in the scheme of things doesn't matter as much to we're making decisions on how to make an impact, how to get products out, and what do we got to spend capital on in hours versus what would take us, you know, weeks in, in the past. And it really boils down to what information do I need to make a decision and who really needs to make that decision? I am super excited about those things sticking as we go forward. I think it's a huge competitive. The companies that get this, get this right will have a huge advantage in the future. But how do you do that, Fred? How do you make sure that these things stay in the culture moving forward? And, you know, people will have a tendency to want to go back to the, their old routines, right? I mean, not everybody, but there's going to be... A, a, a group of people that will want to do that. How do you say, no, this is the way we're going to do business moving forward? How do you ingrain that in your culture now? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you build it into your accountability structures is, is really the first, that's, that's the ultimate thing you do. But, but as far as the messaging, I think it starts there. It starts with, I don't talk about a future state. This is the state. This is the new normal. There is no future state, new normal. As far as I can tell, we're in normal and it will be normal until it changes and then that will be normal. And just become, becoming comfortable with, <laughs> with the reality as it stands today and building process, building, making decisions around the information you have at this very moment. The reality is the world is so dynamic now and had we had this conversation a year ago, even before COVID, we would have said the world is very dynamic now. That's not, that's not going to yeah. change. This is it. This is our reality. And what's the very best way we can manage in this reality? And that's, that's, I think that's the starting point uh, around that. And then, you know, secondly is it's what, it's what you, you know, I said, I talked about accountability. It's what you reward. Who are we rewarding? Are we rewarding the teams for, perfection or rewarding them for speed, right? Are we rewarding the team that, uh, that killed, killed 10 projects or are we rewarding the team that kept the one that, that wasn't quite perfect, right? What do you reward? And, and I believe in our current state, we're celebrating, some, of course, supporting our customers, but, but being able to do it at speed with speed at scale. And if you do those things, hold people accountable, talk about what success looks like, 
in your reward structure, I think you have a much better chance of it becoming a part of your culture. Gravitas is a word that means different things to different people. And I define gravitas as the hallmark of authentic leadership. What is gravitas to you? You know, when I think about gravitas, I think it's about how you show up. And that's not just a physical uh, conversation. It's really the manner of which you are able to inspire or influence the outcome of a situation by your presence being there, whether it's physical presence or whatever your presence is, how that shows up to people and and what does that mean toward inspiring or influencing the outcome and the way you influence that outcome is how you influence the people, (laughs) how you inspire the people, right? The outcome, in my mind, the outcomes are are totally people dependent. And I I talked earlier about having the best people, but it's not about having the best people. It's having the best people and them being their very best self every single day. You know, Ah, we talk about getting the best people, but uh, I want everybody to be their very best self every day. I think leaders that are able to do that, Sometimes we, you, you hear people talk about this person. She's, she's a winner. She's, just, she's got it. She's a winner or he's a winner. And I, I think some of that is, is in this word gravitas. There are people that you just want to follow. Like, I mean, like no, we know that we know they're going in the right direction. And you know what happens is it's this inspiration, this influence allows people to be their best self, but it also gives them permission to expend their discretionary energy toward whatever the, out, whatever the outcome needs to be. I always have this, uh, we have this discussion about continuing to be successful and, man, are we, are we driving the team too hard? And I think that's, that's loser thinking in my mind. Like, the best teams work hard. What, 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 I mean, what are you, what are you talking about? The, 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 we think about a sports analogy. The dynasties, they work hard. They work, they work hard so they can win. So I want people that, that, that on, on the team that, that want to work hard, that enjoy working hard. They want to work smarter too, of course. So I'm not, I'm not suggesting waste, any waste there. But, but I, don't ever feel like, I don't ever feel like we're pushing too hard. As a matter of fact, I'm worried about the other side. I don't want people to get bored. I want, to, I want to, people that want to be challenged that, that feel like there's another peak to climb. And my job as a leader is just to point to the peaks and say, hey, there's another, there's, there's another peak over there. Let's go get it. What do you need to get there? To me, that's, that's the gravitas. It's not necessarily the leader that's, I don't know that that means you've got to be rah-rah and out front and screaming and hollering. I think you can, you can be a quiet leader and show up in a way that really gives, really inspires people to be their best selves and gives them whatever they, whatever they might need in, in order to unlock that discretionary energy to go climb that next peak. And that, that's what mm-hmm. gravitas is to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I, you know, I, I would just, I have to say this. I mean, Mark Casper, our CEO is, is uh, an amazing leader. He's a very humble person and very thoughtful, brilliant, obviously, when you talk to him, you realize that he is so 
specific about the words that he uses. He doesn't waste a word ever. He's so in- intentional is the word that I, that's the word I'm looking for. He's so very intentional in a very understated way, but it absolutely reflects amazing gravitas. When he says something, it's like, got it. <laughs> we have to do it. <laughs> that's and I, I, and, and I, th- I think that's, you know, we all have to find our way. We don't, we, you know, we don't coach style. It's not about style. It's, it's about impact, right? right. And um, I, I, the only thing I would say about gravitas and really just about leadership is uh, authentic leadership. It's about caring about people. Someone once asked me, how do you, how do you convince people that you care? And I said, well, you just got to care about them. There's, there, is no, there is no convincing people that you care. Yeah, is it no faking it either? Either it's coming from the heart or it isn't. Yeah, there's, there's no faking it. You just, you just have to care about people. And um, if you care about people, then you'll get better outcomes. We saw this recently, and it's something that we all know, of course, but in our employee involvement survey, we do an annual survey. There's a question on the survey. It's something like, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's a question that, that says, um, do I believe that my ideas about improving the company are listened to, basically? Do I believe my manager listens to the ideas that I have about improving the company? And what we saw is that colleagues that scored low on that question, that answered that question with a very low score, they also answered questions about, do I have a career here? Do I believe I have a career here? They answered that question at a low score. Do I believe in the continuous improvement process here? They answered that one at a low score. (laughs) Do I respect my manager? They answered that question at a low score. So in essence, if colleagues don't feel heard, and we're not talking about heard and it, it, we're talking about being heard in the area around improving the company. So that's something that clearly people should be heard in. And we have a continuous improvement process called, called practical process improvement, which are a PPI, which is all about hearing those ideas from, from our, our colleagues. And if, if people don't feel heard in that area, it says they're not going to be a great employee. That's not on the colleague. That's on the leader. That's the leader's issue to change, to make sure people on your team feel like their ideas matter. And, you know, Fred, if you talk to half the leaders out there and say it's really important that you, you know, listen to people on your team, most of them would go, oh, yeah, yeah. I listen to the people yeah. on my team. I listen to them all the time. Of course. And I had a rude awakening around about 2010, I think it was. And I was in a leadership role and there was a survey that came out. It wasn't a 360. It was more of an employee engagement survey and it was the same kind of thing, right? And I received some feedback that they said that I I would cut people off mid-sentence. I wouldn't let them finish their thought mm. because I was so excited to jump to the next stage or the answer or the next step. And I felt like I already had it, what they were trying to communicate that I would, I would move forward. I never, never meant it to, to, you know, I never, I was mortified when I thought that they were hurt by my behavior. And, and I, if you'd asked me if I was a good listener, I would have said, oh, I'm one. Yes, I'm a good listener. And when I got that feedback, it shook me to my core. And after that, I was very, very careful because 
you as a leader, you may think that you've heard everything and you got it and, and you start to, to move the conversation somewhere else. But be careful. You know, you have to let the person finish and articulate their complete thought before you, you respond. Yeah, I'm trying not to cut you off after you just gave me that story because I, that's certainly one of my <laughs> development opportunities is, is cutting people off. But I, I, I think it is about, it's about listening, but, but it's also about giving really good feedback. It's, hey, I listened to you. I heard you. We're going to think about that idea. I'll get back to you and let you know. Or hey, that's an amazing idea. I'm going to have Jim follow up with you and let's see how we can move that to execution. Oh, that's a great idea. Unfortunately, that one's not the priority right now. We're going to put that in the parking list and revisit it in six months. How about this? Make sure you ping me and ping me in six months. And I think that will be the one that we, we work on next. It's about, the, it's about the feedback and the follow-up around that that says, oh my, oh my goodness, what I say actually does matter. It's the kind of stuff when people go, people, I, I think, I don't think leaders get this. I, I, sometimes we talk about the, the dinner table impact. We show up as leaders, people go home and they say, hey, you know, such and such came to our, our factory today. Hey, I had, a, I had a meeting with such, a, I was on a Zoom call with, uh, with such and such. How about this? Do you know I had an idea? You know that idea I was telling you about last week? I got, I mustered up enough, enough nerve to say it. And you know what? They said they're going to think about it in six months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, this is the power that we have as leaders. You know what? That idea I had that we're actually going to do it. I'm, I'm going to talk to the, C, to the CFO next week. We're going we're gonna to talk about it. Now think, now think about that person bringing the next idea and the next idea and the next idea. Versus the, yeah. and versus it's, the, it's contagious, it's contagious versus, versus the opposite. Or think about the person that, think about the, here's, here's the super, this is the superpower. This is a super secret. Think about the person in the meeting that did not share their idea. Somebody else shares their idea. We go, hey, we're going to move that one to execution. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for that. And now people are sitting around the table going, I should have, I should have said something. <laughs> Next time I'm going to say something. <laughs> yeah. No, that's right. Bob's I mean, ideal, and he's an idiot. Next time, I'm going to say something. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. It is, and, that, so and, and, it's, true. and it's and that is the, those are the things that change the culture. That dynamic con consistently driving a uh, environment where people are expected to to speak up, and people are rewarded for speaking up and not shunned for speaking up. That's the thing that ultimately changes, changes the culture in a positive direction. Yes, yes, it absolutely does. I want to switch you to a more personal note right now. How do you start your day? Because I'm always intrigued as to how successful leaders start their day. I wake up about uh, 5.45, Without, without the alarm, so I, unless something ha bad happened the night before. But, you know, 5.45, I'm up. Before I get out of bed, I reach over, I grab my phone. This is, this is very personal information, Jan. Wow. I reach over, grab my phone, and I scan through my emails. Every so often, there's a, a few that I can process right away. 
something from APAC or something from, from Europe that's going on, I can answer right away. So I'd, I'd do that for, you know, 15 minutes. And then I'm up at six and go through my routine of, of getting ready. Sometimes I do work out in the morning. I watch CNBC usually in the mornings or CNN um, sometimes. So I'm, I'm able to get kind of a view of what, you know, what's in the news for the day, if there's something that I need to, need to read. And then, you know, here's a COVID thing. I didn't used to do this. I used to not eat breakfast, which is not a healthy thing to do. So I've started doing, during COVID, I've started doing a smoothie every morning. So I have a smoothie, which gives me a little, gives me one more serving of, uh, of greens for the day. And uh, take my vitamins, vitamins drink, a, drink a glass of water, and then get in the car to go to work. So that's kind of what I'm doing these mornings. What do you do to get your head in the right place in the morning? Because um, you know they say reaching for your phone is the worst thing you could possibly do right away. Yeah, right? I know, I know. <laughs> but everybody's different. No, I'm not going to, it's no judgment. Everybody's different. You do what works you, for you. You can judge me, but that's what I'm, that's exactly what I do. Right now I do have one morning meeting that's our stand. I'm, I'm um uh, responsible for or co-leading the corporate incident response team where we, we look at every COVID uh, case or suspected case. So I actually have a morning meeting, but in, a, in, the, in the, my normal life, I don't schedule any meetings for at least an hour after I re- arrive in the office. So I give myself the first hour, I get a cup of coffee, I sit down. I usually go through my day the night before and get prepared, but then it gives me another chance to kind of flip through the day if there's any, any work product I need to get out, I can, I can do that. Or I can think about something. It may give me a chance to think more critically about something. But I, I really like to have about an hour in the morning before I have to jump into a meeting with people and get, to, to, you know, to, start, to start talking. So usually I need a little bit of quiet time and then, and then go from there. Yeah, I think that's a really good practice because I I know that in my time in the corporate world, there's this need, you sort of feel like you have to be in meetings or busy, doing busy work all the time. And in the the last couple of years, I learned that creating that white space to to think and connect is so vitally important. It's it's very important. And, and, you know, my normal life, I I travel a lot, right? So whether I'm in the office or not, I try to have that white space in the morning. Whether I'm in the office or not, I try to have a break for lunch. Now, oftentimes at lunch, I'll spend it with, it's, it's a great opportunity for me to spend it with, with, with someone on a topic, but, but it's still a break from, you know, I'm not in front of a computer. I'm not in a quote unquote meeting with a lot of people. And then before I leave the day, I have some quiet time for myself where, and that's where I kind of get organized for the next day reflect on the day, kind of follow up on any, you know, any specific action items I need to get out right away. But I, I, I try not to just do it once a day. I try to get, you know, a few spots of white space where I got some time for myself um, in order to, you know, stay organized, but also stay focused on, on what's, what's, in, what's most important. Mm, yeah, that's good. Good plan. So looking back at your life, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self in today's environment? I got some advice at 25 or maybe just before then around my career that served me well. And, and someone said, hey, 
So when I was still a GM, they said, you should write down the roles that you want for the next 20 years. And it really served me well, even though I, I didn't do all those roles while I was at GM, I, you know, it gave me a, a path at least to follow from a career perspective. I think the advice I would give myself being where I am now, I would say, write down the personal development needs you're going to have for the next 20 years and start ticking off that list. Because oftentimes we think about career success, career development, and, and I, this is very important, but separate from that is personal development. And what are the things that you need to personally do? What are the skills, experiences that you need in order to be ready for that career success? I think I would focus more on that and, and encourage myself to do that. The other one would be around connections. And I, you know, maybe I'll use the word networking, but I would just uh, maybe describe what I mean. I, I would say to say, hey, Fred, young Fred Lowry, 25-year-old Fred Lowry, become better at networking. And it's not about who you meet. It's more about, or let's say it differently, it's not about who you know. It's more about who knows you and more importantly, what they think about you. Yeah. So make deep relationships with probably fewer people and make sure those people have an incredibly positive view of you. And then you don't have to build a huge network because you'll tap into their network and they will become your, your biggest supporters and their network will think really positively of you versus, you know, having a few folks that you, that, you know, or having a lot of people that you've met, but they, they don't really know you and they're not your advocates at all because they don't really know you. Not, not that you're not great. They just don't know you. So, so find, you know, a smaller group to network with and become uh, make sure they become real advocates for you. I think that's really good advice. And in this, in this day and age where connectivity is so much greater than it was before, you, you can do that really well, I believe. Uh, we talk about ha people having mentors, but what you really need is sponsors. And, you know, you don't really select your sponsors. They kind of select you. So you need to have some deep relationships where people can feel like, hey, this person's really going to go somewhere and I, I'm committed to helping accelerate that uh, as a sponsor. So I think the two things that, that I could do differently would be, you know, centered around personal development and really building a deeper network, uh, not, not, not in quantity, but in, in quality and impact. And just one more thing on personal development and just in practice, what does that mean? Scott Mitchell. I don't know if you remember Scott Mitchell from Maytag. He was the head. I you do. remember Scott Mitchell? Yeah. I do. Scott Mitchell gave me some advice one day. I don't know, we were walking out of the, the, walking out of the office or something. It wasn't like a structured, you know, mentoring session. He just said, hey, you ought to, you ought to really get deep and in, in lean. Said in your role, or you're right. You ought to really learn everything you can about lean. I think it'll, it'll serve you well later. Like literally, it was like those two sentences. And I thought, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And I can't begin to tell you, like that gem of, of advice, just building that, building that, putting that tool in my toolbox has changed my career. Totally changed wow, my. Wow, that's totally powerful. changed my career. So. 
when I talk about personal development, it's what are those few things you're going to become really good at and, and, and what do you need to become good at in order to, to reach your career aspirations? And if you don't know what those things are, then just find somebody that's doing what you want to do and see what, see what they're really good at. Wow, I think now that you've said that, we'll have to find out where he is. I'll find. I'll track him he down. He would be great on this podcast. Oh my we'll god! We'll get him on the you podcast. Should. You should. We will. We'll <laughs> track him down. Personal development has never stopped for you, and you've recently taken a board position. Yes. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm on the board of a uh, of Dupont, which is a, a wonderful company, and. Um, it's an amazing board. I've been on the board for almost 18 months now. And I'd like to joke and say, I've gotten 10 years of board experience in 18 months (laughs) because there's so many things going on with the company. It's such an exciting time. And what it's allowed me to do as a, you know, someone that's been, I've been at Thermo Fisher for 15 years, you know, it's allowed me to kind of pull back the covers on a, on a leading company and actually see how they do things versus how we do things. So I've learned, a lot um, from a benchmarking standpoint and some things they're great at and some things we do differently. But so that's been a, a great experience. It's also allowed me and, and the reason I'm on a board is because our CEO, Mark Casper said, hey, Fred, you should get on a board. It will help you see the CEO position from a different vantage point. And it has, you know, uh, the second thing he said was you'll get to understand what board members are thinking about. Jan, as a board member, you're thinking about totally different things than, than you are as an operator. You know, as an operator, we're thinking about how are we going to execute this thing and all these things. As a board member, we're thinking about, well, what's, what are the real threats to the company? What are the real, what's the real value in the company? What's the real threats to the brand? You know, what does this mean for the company's longevity over the next, you know, 100 years? You know, DuPont's a 200-year-old company. So, uh, so you, you, the, the view is different and it allows you to, to step back away from the, the execution of like, how am I going to execute this to what's right? What about the, you know, what about integrity? You know, how does that play into to our thinking? Are we doing the right things as, as a company? It's, it's, and it's been really powerful for me and made me a really a much better, much more thoughtful leader in my day job. So I would really encourage uh, board service. And I, I totally see it as service to all aspiring uh, senior executives. I think it's a really important thing to do. And, and, I, and I also feel like being on the board, there's a lot of power. You have, you have a lot of influence and, you know, you, you can make a difference. You know, the fact that you ask a question means somebody's going to have to answer it. You know, you, you should be really thoughtful. And, and to, uh, I would say this to, for those of you that, that don't know me, I happen to be African-American. But I would say this to all of our um, folks who are on boards that are, that are diverse, and maybe you're the first, the first of one or, or the only one or the first of whatever your particular diversity might be, I would encourage you to speak up, to speak up and provide your perspective because you're there because the board needs your perspective. So don't be afraid to say, well, what about this uh, if nobody else says it? And even 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 uh, if they do give your give your point of view because it's necessary, uh, and frankly the board believes it's necessary. That's what that's why that's one reason you're in the room. It's been it's been great, Jan. I I, I really really feel fortunate to um, to be able to work with such a great a great group of board members, which has been 
Uh, probably the final point for me is just the richness of the conversation and the interactions that I get with industry leaders, icons, and and uh, folks who have done it before. That's been a, a big part of a big part of the learning, and and just a just a whole lot of fun to be around some some folks who have been incredibly successful, but they are the best people on the planet. It's been great. Mm, that's a wonderful way to describe board experience. What's your legacy, Fred Lowry? Well, I'm not done yet, so I, I, <laughs> we're still we're still working on that. But I I remember early in my career, and I thought business leaders were amazing. <laughs> this is this. I work at General Motors. I mean, it was like my eyes were wide, and we make cars, and we it's iconic. It's amazing. And somewhere along the line, there, the shine around corporate being a corporate executive has has uh, has wavered a little bit. Mm. And um, I I want my legacy to be an example of a senior executive, an example of a capitalist who's done it the right way, who's done it in a way that's made a huge impact for the good of society. And, and I, I really believe that. And that's, that's with the way we support our customers. That's with the products that we make. It's with what we do internally and how we support our colleagues with our policies, with our, with the culture that that we create, it's through it's through being honest and having integrity, and uh, and making a difference and understanding that you're making a difference every day. I want my legacy to be that. I don't want to do anything professionally that I that I would be ashamed of telling my kids about, or people that I mean my family or people that care about me about. My hope is that through my actions that, that others are inspired to do the same, you know, and we should be incredibly excited about the capabilities that we have in corporate America and the great impact that corporate America has, has on our lives. And, you know, I'm seeing some changes, some signs of changes. And we think about what the business Roundtable did a couple of years ago with, uh, you know, talking about the purpose of companies being, you know, for the good of stakeholders, not just shareholders. Yes. It's very yes. important. I thought it was a great step. It was an amazing step. And, and look at governance now and, and uh, you know, the, the emergence of ESG and people really want to know, what are you doing? What are you doing to make a positive difference other than making a profit? But, um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly a capitalist. I'm a, I think I'm a compassionate ca- capitalist. I believe that we should make money. Uh, but I also believe that that the benefit of of what we do should benefit society. So we should, you know, our actions should be benefiting society and specifically our colleagues that work here and the communities that that they're a part of. So hopefully, I, I could do my part and I, you know, my small part to to continue to move that uh, or move the needle on on that dimension. It's clear to me that you are having an impact. That you're having an impact not only in society with the products 
that your company is working with right now, but most certainly as a leader and the people that you engage with. And it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast and sharing your journey and your insights with our audience today. Fred Lowry, thank you. Thank you so much, Jan. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you found something of value that will help you on your quest for your gravitas, then please share with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. Visit us at gravitasdetroit.com to find out more.